Hey there, welcome to Louisiana Farm Life, a podcast where we talk with real farmers about who they are, what they grow, and the struggles they face on and off of the farm. I'm your host, Carl Wiggers, and I grew up living my own farm life in Northeast Louisiana. Today, I'm joined by another member of the team. You've already met Avery Davidson here on episode six. Today, Neil Malonson is with me. Neil, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. So I asked Avery this, and I wanted to ask you now. So you listen to some podcasts, right? Sure. What's your favorite part about this podcasting platform that we're on right here? Well, there's two things, really. One is I really love the fact that you can bring a small group of people together and have an intimate discussion. Uh, You know, you've had good ones where you've had two people on, and you can really get into that thing. But we had five this week, including it was me and you and uh, Mm -hmm. the two guests that we're getting ready to meet, as well as Andy Brown. Mm -hmm. We should talk about, you know, him being there. He's uh, Louisiana Farm Bureau's uh, Associate Commodity Director in their National Affairs. And bringing him in added this new, great new voice, I think to it as well as the fact that um so you can really have this this great discussion like a round table yes exactly and the second thing is the depth mm-hmm. I, I really think you can get into a topic or a history or whatever you're discussing there with a great depth that you just don't see i mean we try and bring some of that to the tv show mm-hmm. but you really just because it's 28 30 every week 28 minutes and 30 seconds you got, every week you got two or three minutes for a story you just have a limited time even when we extend that out as mm-hmm. we've talked about before you you just have that limited time and with podcasts you can really just let people talk out mm-hmm. what they're gonna say and let them say it in their own words that's exactly. what i love is yeah. letting them say it one thing i've noticed you like getting deep and kind of into the weeds about is history and right. louisiana history and connections around louisiana history and agriculture yeah. i mean am i right is that absolutely is that another appeal to you you know when when we go to dc at the justice department there's uh literally carved in stone on the side of the justice department building it says the past is prologue And that's really what I see about history is that it is the foundation of everything that we do. And and especially the older I get, the more you can see how uh, patterns are repeated, you know, throughout time. Let me give you a small example. You're a millennial, right? Mm, Thanks. And so um, everybody gives millennials a lot of grief, you know, that they say they're entitled and arrogant and, you know, brash and and whatever. Well, that describes every young generation in history. (laughs) I mean, every older generation has always thought that about younger generation. And when you see history, you can see how this this cycle of old and new repeats itself Mm -hmm. over and over again. And so that's really my interest in history. And there's so many fascinating things as we're getting ready to get into here with this podcast. Well, tell me about who we're talking to today. Tell me about this guest this week. All right. Well, today I have a riddle for you. What does Andrew Jackson, World War II, a senator, two congressmen, and a lawyer turned farmer all have in common? Well, they're all part of the family history of John Gay, a seventh generation sugarcane farmer in Iberville Parish. On this podcast, he and his son-in-law, Patrick Frischertz, are going to take us on a fascinating journey into the and a history that spans as long as sugarcane has been in Louisiana. I spoke earlier about depth and this is one of those stories that cuts right to the heart of louisiana and america's history i hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did now let's get into the interview with patrick frischertz and john gay on louisiana farm life (music) 
So John, I'm, I'm really glad to be here in the office with you. You're surrounded by these pictures of your history and that's kind of what we want to talk about here. You are a seventh generation sugarcane farmer, is that correct? Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how it all got started with your family and their involvement. They're originally not from Louisiana, is that correct? That's right. A family was uh, living and in, in, had farming interest in uh, uh, near Nashville, Tennessee. And Joseph Irwin was, was his name, and, and he, like a lot of people in the area, were uh, uh, racehorse enthusiasts. And, and so uh, just so happens that Andrew Jackson was a neighboring farm, and he, uh, he was also a, a, a horse racing enthusiast. And, and so they each had uh, just uh, some outstanding uh, horses. One was named Truxton. I think that was Joseph Irwin's, and the other one was named Plowboy, and that was uh, Andrew Jackson's. Everybody in the area wanted to see these two horses race because they were just had, you know, such success, and and so there was a lot of hype uh, and newspapers and you name it. Um, so anyway, on the day of the race, of all things, Joseph Irwin's horse came up lame, and they had to. Uh, uh, pay forfeiture under the contract of the race or so. So um, he, he came to Andrew Jackson with uh, the payment, and Jackson looked at it and said, well, those, uh, those notes aren't worth the pa paper they're written on. And, of course, uh, Joseph Irwin took exception to that, and they were squabbling back and forth. And Joseph Irwin had this young son-in-law, and his name was Charles uh, Dickinson. And... Uh, he uh, was a crack shot, and and uh, he ran into some of uh, Jackson's people, and Jackson ran. So anyway, the thing got all hyped up. Next thing you know, uh, this young boy called um, Andrew Jackson's wife Rachel, basically a whore because she had been married before him. And boy, when when uh, when that happened, Andrew Jackson just couldn't stand it, and they, he. There were a uh, challenge to a duel. Dueling was outlawed in uh, Nash uh, or in Tennessee, and so they had to go across the uh, state line to, uh, to to Kentucky to uh, have this. And so anyway, they did. They had the entourage with them and everything, and they went on up into Kentucky. And uh, in the morning of the duel, um, uh, Andrew Jackson decided he was not going to shoot first. He was just going to let the young man shoot. And and so, what we the story we like to tell is that you know he he uh, Jackson was a, a, a very slender man, but always wore big coats. If you look at at uh, photographs of him and so forth. So anyway, Dickinson fired, and he couldn't believe it, but I, Jackson didn't fall, and and uh, the bullet uh, lodged under his arm in his rib cage area. It's a bullet he carried for the rest of his life. It was, they couldn't operate on it. And, uh, and he was always, uh, I mean, the thing would weep and make foul smells. and Anyway, but he lived with it, and he came back onto his mark, and, and uh, he aimed and he hit uh, Dickinson this time uh, in the gut. And, uh, and two days later, the young man died. So Joseph Irwin and Andrew Jackson could no longer be uh, neighbors or friends or have anything to do with each other. And, um, 
And so Joseph Irwin started looking for an opportunity elsewhere, put his belongings on a flatboat and uh, came down the uh, Mississippi and, and uh, landed in Iberville Parish. And I mean, right just straight the levee is in that direction. Um, so he, he brought all of his belongings and he built a house. Uh, they called it Home Plantation. Uh, and it was uh, the first two-story house or building in Iberville Parish at the time. Some people called it Castle Dangerous because it looked like it was going to topple over. Uh, uh, but anyway, that house was uh, eventually taken by the river because of uh, encroaching uh, erosion. And... Uh, and Joseph Irwin uh, later on had a, had a son, uh, Andrew Hines, a son-in-law rather, Andrew Hines, who uh, fought in the Battle of New Orleans side by side with uh, uh, Jackson. And, and so that, that's a funny relationship in that you had this family that couldn't stand Jackson, yet they, they're fighting together. Um, anyway, that's, that's a, long, a long story. They, that's a great story. Uh, we've been here ever since, and... Uh, Patrick and Sarah are eighth generation, and uh, we're we're still making it. Still making it. That's an incredible story. You guys have been here more than two hundred years. Then, as long as sugarcane has been really in Louisiana, and um, I see you've got some pictures here behind mm -hmm. you of some of the folks here. Can you just briefly lead me through some of these uh, uh, these guys? Yeah, uh, these. Uh this is uh, four generations, and this is before Erwin and his and Andrew Hines uh, came. So uh, two generations prior to uh, uh, this man who uh, came to Louisiana and built the two-story uh, plantation home up on the river. His father, uh, John Henderson Gay, never moved uh, from Nashville. He stayed there um, throughout his time. And, and so then uh, Andrew, uh, excuse me, uh, Edward Gay had a son, Andrew, and he, and he had a son, Andrew. And then this boy is a half brother of my grandfather. So uh, him and him are, are half brothers. And then this gotcha. is Andrew, and, and this is Andrew, same picture. And this is Edward in his older years. That's, uh, that's Edward. He uh, is my, what, great-great-grandfather. Um, so, um, you know, it, it continues, and, and we're just uh, privileged, I think, to carry on the heritage that, that uh, those ancestors from long ago, uh, uh, you know, got things going and, and kept them going. And so we're... Um, we're glad to be here and, and continuing. And, and, you know, the other thing is, old Joseph Irwin, when he came on that flatboat, he was checking out properties here, there, and yonder as where he was going. And, and this uh, property really um, piqued his interest because it's, it's such a, a highly uh, drained uh, farm. And uh, it's, it's in the curve of the river here where where you know over the eons flood uh, rains and erosion and everything left a lot of good soil from up in the Midwest, I guess, and uh, it's uh, it's been really a highly productive uh, plantation for all these years. So is the farm 
that y'all farm on right now, that land, is that the same land that he got off the flatboat on? That's right. Same land. Wow. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about more modern family history. Tell me about your dad and then getting into to sugarcane farming with you. Yeah, my, uh, my dad was, was Andrew. Uh, the way we passed this da- uh, down is uh, the, sta- the man standing there, Edward, he was a U.S. congressman. And, uh, and he was very active. And uh, he was a merchant. He, he imported from uh, the Caribbean. Uh, there was coffee and, and so forth. So he had more interest than just um, here in, in Iberville Parish. Uh, so uh, my father, Andrew, uh, the son of the guy in the middle, uh, uh, was in World War II and, and uh, Battle of the Bulge. And, and after all of that, he came directly back here. Um, my, fa- my brother Price Gay um, was working with my father, and when I got out of uh, uh, school at LSU, I came in, and, and that was about the time we st- sugar was so, uh, the price was so um, just unmanageable. Uh, so that we got into soybeans, and, uh, and we, we've talked some about that. Um, um, about 1984, my brother and I um, convinced the family that they needed to lease this property to, to Price and me and not be a corporate uh, a farm, so to speak. And uh, Because otherwise, I mean, we were, we were just going to pack up and go find something else to do. And so they, they allowed us to, uh, to rent the land, buy the equipment, and... Uh, that was 84, and we've been doing it. Well, then then my brother married Linnell Shakespeare in, in New Roads, and she uh, had some property up there that, that Price uh, started farming. And so we had one corporation with two locations for, for several years. And, uh, and then eventually uh, we, we split up, and, and uh, my brother's still up. Well, no, he actually, two years ago, he retired. That's right. And... Uh, he still lives in uh, New Roads, and he has certainly uh, grassroots right here, and still involved in in the, at the board level uh, of uh, the land owning company Edward J Gay. It, it was uh, that corporation was formed when uh, when Edward died, and in, in uh, eighteen ninety two, and um, and so he. Um, Anyway, probably it's gone on too long, and you want to jump over to Patrick. Um, so, just clarification for mine sometimes, because even I forget, and I've been here for ten years now. So, before 1984, it was the EJ Gay Company, formed by Edward, was the landowner and also the farming entity, and generations went down managing the land, and then mm-hmm. in 1984, you and Price jumped in and started managing it for yourself so there was that that break it's still Mm -hmm. it's still family owned family run because even though st louis planning leases it it's still family uh family all around but kind of a different stretch in management i Mm -hmm. guess change in management well let me that that brings up an interesting point which is what a lot of you know 
people talk about corporate farm and corporate farming, but it's not like you guys are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> it's a it's a structure that's designed to protect your family and protect the farm. Certainly. But you still are a family farm. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the bloodline started with Joseph Irwin, and it's been the same since then. And that brings up your involvement, Patrick, you married into the family. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit about your your involvement and how you got there, especially as we've talked about, yeah. you don't have a farming background. No, no. My father-in-law is a seventh generation. Um, I say I, I married into it, so I don't claim the generational thing per se. It, it jumps me and my son or, or daughter, if they so choose, will be ninth generations. But I guess we can, for fun's sake, we'll claim eighth generation farmer. But no, I, I, there's no, don't have an agricultural background other than helping my dad with a garden in the in the backyard growing up. But that's about it. Um, by training, uh, attended LSU, graduated with a degree in history and education, then jumped into law school at Loyola and uh, was there at Loyola for for three years. Graduated, took the bar, and uh, actually found out I passed the bar while I was sitting out here on a tractor. But I was, I was very fortunate when I was at Loyola to, to join in my third year a clinical practitionership where we got to try cases at the Jefferson Parish DA's office. Going into law school, I thought I wanted to, to litigate. That's where all the action was. And after litigating a couple of criminal cases, I realized very quickly that it wasn't a happy fit. Like I, I couldn't see myself doing that for the rest of my life. And uh, I started dating my wife back when I was just entering law school and uh, I'll give my wife and mother-in-law a lot of credit. They started dropping hints saying, hey, would you be interested in farming? Because my father-in-law had, uh, had four daughters, and I don't think any of them were interested in farming. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is uh, it's a bit of a change, but after going through that clinical practitionership and seeing what it's like to litigate, I said, you know what? This might be stressful in different ways, but a more appealing lifestyle. And I think right, right after I took the bar, I talked to my father-in-law and said, hey, is there a spot to, to get a shot? It seems like it's a pretty good lifestyle. And, um, Could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but it, it was definitely, definitely a change and it took a, a, bit, a bit of pride to some extent to swallow and say, hey, let's go make this big change after such a huge investment of time, energy, and money into law school. But now ten, it's been 10 years and looking looking back no regrets i mean farming is stressful in its own right but uh at least i find the quality of life for the most part much more enjoyable it's a lot more fun to to work with with quality people instead of arguing with people tell me about that uh quality of life issue there's a fulfillment there and we've talked about that before but let's tell you know tell everybody listening what is it that that really grips you about farming well, with sugarcane farming in particular, it's 365, but there's something new every day. It keeps you on your toes. But I, I mean, I really enjoy working with people. We have a great group of, of people that work with us. I mean, starting off with my father-in-law, he's been just a fantastic mentor and has guided me through, my, I guess, my learning and education about agriculture as a whole. And then we have a bunch of guys that have been here for a long time, and they're very eager to pass on information. And it's, it's very rewarding to work with those people. But on top of that, farming, for the most part, at the end of the day, you can look back and you can see the progress you've made or lack thereof during certain grindings. But uh, it's rewarding to look back and say, hey, we cultivated these acres. We cut these acres. We were able to do something physical, material, and you can see the progress. You can see the reward of it. Whereas when I was practicing, at least on the criminal side, it, nobody 
there was no reward. There was very rarely a good case scenario. At the end of the day, you walked away thinking, hey, we did something positive. Usually it's, um, you know, you're sending somebody to, da- to jail. You're taking them away from families. You're taking them away from a job. It's not a happy scenario to be in. And farming, at least for me, was uh, getting your hands in the dirt, doing something I felt was much more positive and enjoyable as a whole. At the end of the day, I could look back in the mirror at myself and say, man, this is, we did good today. Can I, can I ask real quick, Mr. John, you were raised on a farm, am I right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's all you knew growing up. That's right. That white house I was from till age six. Was there ever another option for you? Did, was, was there something else that appealed to you? I mean, maybe not law school, but was there another industry or something, or was it always the farm that was your end you goal? Know, I, I, I knew who uh, was uh, involved in, in this place until that, how, how they fit in, uh, what they were doing and so forth. And it, it, there, there was a void that uh, somebody with experience I had. Uh, I had worked for LSU for a year as an enumerator on uh, sugarcane uh, farms all around the state, finding out about cost of production practices that are used, just valuable information that I, I brought directly back here and, uh, and started uh, making changes. Of course, it was not easy. My, my father was not quick to, to uh, accept change. Uh, but uh, anyway, we, we got uh, a lot uh, done, and, and so it's... Uh, it's been good, and it's been great working with, with Patrick uh, these years. It, time flies. Ten years, I mean, wow, where'd that go? You know. Uh, mm-hmm. So we uh, we keep on. I, yeah. I would imagine your law degree didn't didn't go completely to waste. That there's got to be some things that you use it for around the farm. Is am I am I wrong? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, just even from the land management side. Uh, uh, my father-in-law is the vice president of the Edward J. Gay Company. I'm a, an employee of the company, and and we work hand in hand with other managers of, of the, the landowning company and working with pipeline right of ways, uh, damages to crops. It's I mean we have thirty some odd pipelines on this place and more coming through. And there's always repairs, always things happening. So we're it feels like a constant state of negotiation on something, and it certainly helps walking into the room knowing the basic outline of Louisiana law, where you stand, where they stand, and more often than not, everybody comes to a happy place as far as just trying to to reach a settlement because we all know where we are. It's at least, I feel like it's a pretty big leg up on, on that end. Um, and yeah, as far as the farm end, I mean, look, negotiating contracts for buying equipment, trying to, to market your crop. It, it helps having a baseline understanding of where you sit and the legality of it. Usually when you're trying to negotiate, things progress pretty well. If everybody has a good understanding where they stand to start off with. Most farmers I've talked to wish that they could have a law degree and an engineering degree and, you know, all of this specialized knowledge because you use Mm -hmm. all of that on the farm. Um, We can't uh, escape without talking a little bit about the crop year that was. How was 2019 for you guys? When did you finish um, there? I knew you'd be handing it off to one another. (laughs) uh, uh, We had talked earlier this summer, uh, Patrick, and and how did the crop year turn out uh, versus your expectations? Um, we went into the years, we'll break it up in the soybeans and sugar cane, Please uh, do. the two for this year. We'll start off with cane because that is, uh, with most of our resources and time and energy and land go into it. 
we weren't anticipating a great crop because in 2018 we had a very wet harvest season we did a lot of damage to the crop trying to pull the crop out in 2018 we had a fantastic crop i think it was a record crop for this place but again because of the rainfall we rutted up the fields it was a mess we knew we were going to have our hands full we needed a dry spring well that didn't happen we had a very wet spring i think it was the second or third most rainfall in this area for the past 60 years we did a bit more damage trying to cultivate the crop. Um, so going into it, we knew we would have a light crop. There wouldn't be the tonnage in the field. Um, and that turned out to be the case for sugarcane. But what kind of got us was on November 13th, we had a freeze. It Freezes aren't that uncommon in Louisiana, but this was a little bit different because it was a dry freeze. Usually you have a front come through. You have one or two inches of rain. That rain, the moisture will insulate the crop. It'll freeze over and it'll protect it. With this front, there was no moisture, and it got down to, what, 26, 27 degrees for a handful of hours. It cracked the rind, especially the tops of the cane. Mm. What made it so difficult is after that, about two weeks after that freeze, the recoverable sugar just dropped. And usually what you see is on a light crop, you have a high sugar content in the crop, and that makes up for the light crop, and you can end up with average yields. That seemed to be the case until that freeze hit. So before the freeze, we had a light crop with above average recoverable sugar, after the freeze, we had a very light crop with lower than average recoverable sugar. So it went from a really great crop in 2018 to a well below average crop in 2019. I mean, we experienced from 18 to 19 about a 30% drop off in recoverable sugar, which was pretty substantial. John, uh, have you ever seen freezes that early? I mean, and how many times has that happened over the years? The, the one that comes to my mind is 1989, and it was a Christmas time freeze. And I think we got down uh, on one of those cold days to about 11 degrees here. And uh, but it, it and it stayed overnight on uh, at least one. I'm just stretching my memory uh, of what actually happened, but it was severe, and we had a stalk splitting freeze, and uh, we ended up hauling only uh, a quarter of, of what we expected. And so that was the most damage that I've ever seen. There's uh, been, there was another year and I, I don't recall, it seems like it might've been in the 84 range or 85, um, <clears throat> where we, we, uh, we lost some, but just wasn't as severe as, as 89. But it seems like um, it doesn't happen very frequently, and when it does, it's, late, it's much later than this one was in the year. Is that right? Well, historically, uh, we've said that sugarcane is a it's a durable crop for for this area, and unlike so many opportunities in the grain business to have a failure, uh, but uh, sugarcane is is pretty resilient, and uh, and by you know the results of those freezes we talk about here, they. Uh, proven to be one of the resiliencies of course not just not just in the crop but in the industry you guys have made some changes here in the last few years including a trucking arrangement as well as the uh the mills have made an arrangement with lsr tell me about that and how that's changed and this is a question for either of you guys and and how that's kind of helping you um okay we'll start off with lsr it's so it was a little bit before my time that a uh, number of the growers and the millers got together to form a cooperative and to end up buying, was it Imperial? Uh, Imperial right. Refinery mm -hmm. in Gramercy. 
and they formed Sugar, which then worked with Cargill to form LSR. And like St. Louis and the landowning company EJ Gay are fractional parts of the co-op owners of the cooperative. But um, what it does, it provides a place for our, a home for our sugar, if you want to look at it that way. We know we have a place that's going to that's going to take it, and they're going to market it for us, and on at least on an average year, receive a slightly above average price on that on that sugar because they do such a quality job refining it. They're one of the newest. I don't think now, but at the time. They were the newest and most advanced refiner in the entire world, and they do a phenomenal job. And um, for us, it, it it we receive a slightly better uh, price on our sugar when it's all said and done. Plus, we we do own part. St. Louis owns part of of the refinery, and their their dividends back. And before that dividend would just stay with the owner of the refinery, so it's a slight extra source of income for us. And with the trucking company. Yeah, that happened in the summertime. There was um, a case out of Florida that um, prohibited independent contractors from using, applying and receiving H-2A workers for their trucking. And we worked with a local, with our local mill and a number of other farmers to form a cooperative owned by the farmers to apply for H-2A workers and bring these workers in to drive trucks back and forth. You can have a crop in the field, but Sugarcane is a little bit different, I guess, in that it has to be processed, kind of like cotton, if that makes sense. You have a product that has to be processed before it can go to the market. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a marketable product just sitting there as a raw sugar piece of sugarcane. So we have to have that crop get in a timely fashion to the mill to be processed before we can have a marketable product. If we don't have truck drivers, we don't have a crop. And then for a little while there, it was touch and go. Fortunately, there were a number of great, um, great attorneys and a lot of leadership from the mills that were able to help facilitate this uh, this cooperative. It was a quick turnaround. You you've mentioned a couple of times St. Louis and the mm-hmm. uh, EJ EJ Gay. Uh, is it is that right? That's yes. the, that's the yeah. landowning company. Yeah. What is St. Louis? Just out of curiosity, what is I mean, St. Louis? You, you referenced St. Louis a couple of times. Is that the farm? Yeah, it's a corporation that my wife and I own. I used to share ownership with my brother Price. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Um, and and so that's uh, been operating since about 1984. Um, you know, I, going back, uh, there are stories that uh, I guess uh, because of our long history uh, come to mind. And, and one uh, was uh, this place used to have uh, a sugar mill on it and, and uh, it uh, did not have a refinery per se. It last operated like couple of years after the uh, World War II. Uh, but uh, it was a different marketing uh, regimen uh, at that time. They say that one day uh, the front door on, on the plantation home uh, knocked and they a- answered the door and it was a Mr. Hershey from Pennsylvania. And wow. he was looking for a source for, uh, for sugar for his candy. And uh, I think I think he made it okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know what what kind of deal was struck with that, but uh, you know, uh, just just stories from time to time crop up um, because of the longevity here. Well, the funny thing is, LSR delivers to Hershey yeah, yeah. to this day, so your sugar mm-hmm. is still making yeah. it there. And yeah. okay, right. is there significance to St. Louis? Is there is there a story behind oh, that well, becoming yeah. the name? Um, uh, Edward. Uh, the guy standing in the picture was from uh, St. Louis. Okay. And uh, when he moved here, of course, I said uh, the Irwins called it home plantation. And then uh, 
Edward uh, changed the name to St. Louis as his you know, city of his origin. Um, so, uh, and then we've hung on to that uh, name ever since. And, and so uh, in 1892, when they, uh, Edward had died, they formed a, a corporation of family members that has been able to sustain everything uh, over those uh, 100 and something years now. So I think it was a good move to, uh, to set up in that fashion. Sometimes uh, with the terminology, I'll apologize. I use them interchangeably. So there's the, the land, which sometimes we refer to as St. Louis Plantation. Then you have the farming company owned by my father-in-law and mother-in-law of St. Louis Planting. And then you have the E.J. Gay Company, which owns the land. And I'll sometimes incorrectly just kind of use them interchangeably, just depending sure. on the scenario. So I apologize if there's any. That's a good explanation. I, I was mainly curious if there was a story behind St. Louis because it's yeah. interesting to me. The story there was. Yeah. There is. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. That that's great. And and uh I Patrick had earlier mentioned that he sort of demurs about being the eighth generation, but I feel like you have a different feeling about that, that you, you're pretty glad that you had someone oh, come absolutely. in. Uh you know, as we've talked about here, uh there's so much in his uh, legal uh, training and, and education that, that helps us every day, uh, really. And uh uh I can always call on Patrick when the, something of a legal uh, matter uh, is, is put on the table. And, uh, and you know, he's always got the answer. Or he'll figure out where to find one, and, and uh, he's very thorough. And, and the other thing about Patrick is he, he really is willing to roll his sleeves up and dive into this work. And you just wouldn't think that a man who put a coat and tie on for several years um, would have that kind of... Uh, uh, initiative to do, you know, this sometimes grunt, greasy, cold, bloody uh, uh, work that this can be, and uh, and he fills the bill real well with his, with uh, those qualities. I appreciate. It. There was one funny, quick story about that. Uh, I call it just a brief initiation to the farm. Uh, so I joined the farm. This was the fall of two thousand, yeah, two thousand ten, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, fall 2010. Anyway, in sugarcane farming, you have to cut sugarcane if it's dry, if it's wet, snowy, in any condition. The mill's only open for a certain number of days. You have to get your crop to them. Well, we cut one particular field in just a monsoon, and the rows and the drainage were all a mess. And uh, since it was my, my first grinding season, my father-in-law said, okay, I'll give you a shovel and go out there and make sure this this field drains. And it took about two days of with knee-high boots, it seemed like, to go get the field draining. But that was, I feel like it was my initiation, the, the reality of if you want to farm, you better, you better learn to get your, your hands dirty very quickly or else it's, it's not going to work out. I bet that was. That's quite an initiation, but yeah. it's just a day ending in Y on the farm, huh? Right, right. Uh, you know, he grabbed the shovel, and a couple of days later, that field drained. And, and it was a test, i got to admit it. You know, it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> Well, it was, an, the past. it was an appreciation for the importance of drainage in Louisiana with all the rain that we get. <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't no. take too long to appreciate the uh, the drain plows that we have and all the work that they do. Well, when we started, you said what attracted you and made you want to come into this uh, industry was the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I guess kind of reflecting back on that side of things, just bringing it all together from both of your stories. Uh, the gener both your 
eighth and ninth generation or seventh and eighth, I guess, came in at a time where the farm economy was very volatile. The early 80s trying to go out on your own and rent land and mm-hmm. uh, catch yourself on your own two feet rather than your father's generation. And then now, 10 years ago, there was a lot of volatility. Uh, seen some good times since then, and now we're back uh, in a tougher farm economy. So what ways have, I guess, each generation adapted to to meet those challenges? Well, uh, as I said, this land, to our benefit, was always a, a high producer. And um, uh, we you know, went to soybeans for a period of time. I guess it was 10 years or so uh, that we were really into it. Sugarcane was taking a back seat uh, because of the price was so low. Um, and then, um, you know, things improved. And uh, as they always, the, the cyclical nature of, of this business, um, we uh, were able to uh, adapt, uh, be conservative with uh, our approach to um, finances and so forth. Um, and, you know, even had uh, labor management uh, uh, issues that we've reached all the way back to Edward Gay to find to to find a solution and, and what he did in in uh, uh, post Civil War era to to bring in labor and keep labor and uh, and so um, uh, I think he had a, a good plan even uh, way back then. Um, like, or can you give us an example? Well, uh, one is that he had a. a a practice of, of not paying all of the labor during the crop. He would pay maybe uh, half to three quarters uh, during the crop. And and then when the crop was done, he would give the labor uh, the rest. And and they always knew that they had this, this little bit more coming. And it was an attraction that maybe other landowners were not offering. Uh, but uh, uh, but the bonus system is still very much part of our uh, uh, labor relations uh, today. Learned a lot as far as just the managing the good and the bad. Uh, last year was a great example. 2018 was a very good year. And uh, my father-in-law wasn't overly excited when it was all said and done. I was pumped. I said, oh, we had a great year, you know, crop-wise, financially. He's like, all right, good and the bad. One year later, yeah, we had a bad crop. And fortunately, due to... to learning from the years of experience to kind of take the good and the bad and just weather the storm and knowing in the good times that you better save up and keep your pennies because the bad's coming right around the corner. But, uh, but no, I mean, with St. Louis, there is an element of profit sharing when you have good years. Um, bonuses are good when you have bad years. Yeah. The, the bonuses aren't quite there, but it's an incentive for all the employees and including myself to, you know, work your tails off during the year because I mean, it is, it's part of your livelihood. It's tied up in whether the crops can be good or bad and it can be rewarding or it can be just another year. Yeah. Um, I guess on a final note, tell us about uh, what 2020 looks like for you guys and, and what you're planning and, and uh, tell me about how you guys feel about this coming crop year. You know, um, grinding was not uh, too far gone here. Uh, what, almost three weeks. And, uh, and we always say, look, when we shut it down, last tractor turns the key, let's just forget about this thing. Let's, you know, <laughs> go and do something entirely different with your time. Uh, and I think that's a good practice. Uh, 
we I think as far as our uh, soybean versus cane uh, uh, ratio, uh, we'll probably keep it uh, like it, I don't know if we had any formal conversations uh, uh, even about that until now, but uh, uh, you know we're probably in line to keep about the same ratio. Um, sugar yields, you just um, you never know. You kind of absorb what we've been through the past um, year and, and two or uh, two years, and say, well, maybe we'll average somewhere between the two this coming year. I don't know, um, but I do know that we have a, a fortunate to have a very resilient crop. Uh, we got a, a, a vibrant industry in in Louisiana with sugar, and um, we're all Patrick was interviewed uh, during the crop and you know explaining how things aren't so aren't so good but then he said we're here to live an, uh, live another day however and uh, I thought that was a, an appropriate call on um, on what we have ahead of us you know yeah, fortunately um on the, the 2019 harvest, we had some wet spots like you always do, but it, it wasn't like as bad as 2018. The yields weren't there, but we had a drier grind. It was a bit less expensive for the most part, um, but we didn't damage the fields nearly as badly. So I'm a little more optimistic on the stubble for the crop next year. But I thought we also had a great planting season this year. We were lucky in this area, uh, had some dry spells. We were able to plant the crop. We had some very timely rains to help with the emergence. So for our plant can, I'm very bullish as far as um, compared to last year at this point, much more bullish about the, the sugar crop. And with soybeans, yeah, it's um, we'll see. We, we haven't finalized our rotation, our fallow ground rotation, so we don't know quite how many acres of soybeans we're going to have. Plus the price is, is still pretty low, so it's a little less... Um, I'm quite as excited about soybeans right now as we usually would, but we'll certainly have you know two, three hundred, probably three, four hundred acres of beans when it's all said and done. Not sure on varieties quite yet. We rely on some recommendations from LSU and our crop consultant, primarily our crop consultant, on which way to go. But we'll have beans and we'll have mm -hmm. sugarcane. It's it's in the ground. It's there. That's wonderful. It really seems like your family legacy is still on an arc to keep going well into the future as far as I can see. So I really want to thank both of you guys, John Gay, Patrick Frischertz. Yeah. Thank you for, for being here and inviting us into your home here in the office and sharing this, this incredible legacy. Thank you guys. You're very well, welcome. Thank you. Glad and thanks be. also to Carl Wiggers and Andy Brown who are both joined me for this. And uh, we really appreciate uh, the time here and, and thank you again. I'd like to thank Patrick and John for spending time with us to share these stories. If you enjoyed that, I've also featured Patrick in a story about the sugarcane crop on This Week in Louisiana Agriculture, our TV program. You can see some of the visuals behind their farming there, and I'll put a link to that in this episode's show notes for you to go check out. Neil, you were also on the sugarcane kick, really, over the entire True. last part of the last year. And you did a lot of stories about the industry and the sugar, the history around the sugarcane industry, which has been fascinating to watch. And uh, I'm going to put a link to those in the show notes as well. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, I'm sure that you'll enjoy those stories as well. We even go, you go to LSR, right? That's correct. Louisiana Sugar Refiners in Gramercy, and uh, we had a great time with that. And we discussed that in the podcast. Yeah, we so did. We talked be a neat about tie. that. It, it is, and I think it was a great way to show that, you know, all of this kind of interconnected. If you enjoyed that podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to right now and subscribe so you can stay up to date when we release a new podcast. That feedback really helps us and others find us. This podcast was produced by Carl Wiggers and Neil Melanson and the entire communications team for the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Louisiana Farm Bureau is the voice of Louisiana agriculture. 